Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is a reading from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and said to the and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, "Abraham, Abraham." And he said, "Here I am." He said, "Do not lay your hand on the boy." or do anything to harm him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram, caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. 
Gracious God, in the silence and reflection of this moment, as we've just heard this ancient scripture that on face value is not only disturbing but sounds millions of miles away, we come before you with our fears or our anger. We come to this moment with our joy and our hope. We come to this moment with fun plans for the rest of this Sunday or sorrow because we have no one to share these days with. We come to this particular passage with trust and hope or cynicism or bitterness. We're exhausted or just apathetic. Some of us remember a time where you seemed so close to us and now you seem a million miles away and we're wondering what happened to you or maybe what happened to us. However we find ourselves in this very moment, believing or unbelieving, somewhere in between, help us to trust that you see us in all our beauty and our brokenness, in all our complexity and contradiction. You know us to our core and you love us more than we ever dared to imagine is possible. And we see that love expressed in its fullness in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed, that this world would be renewed. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, that was a heavy passage, so I'm going to begin with a joke, and here it goes. By the way, when I do executive coaching, I always tell our clients of these Fortune 500 companies, try to use humor but never tell a canned joke. So I'm violating my own principles now. Your pastor is full of contradiction. My hypocrisy knows no bounds. Here goes. So there were three nuns. Actually, it was two nuns and a mother superior driving down the highway of San Diego. They were on Highway 8. And the mother superior was driving. Police officer pulls her over. And the, police, the CHP officer says... Uh, Mother, do you know why I pulled you over? She says, I don't. He said, well, you're going far too slow for this freeway. She says, no, I'm not. I'm going the speed limit. It's posted right there. It says eight. He says, ma'am, that is not the speed limit. That's the highway you're on. He then notices the other two nuns in the car are hysterically crying and shaking. And he says, ladies, what is, what's the problem? What's the matter? And they said, officer, thank you for stopping us. We just got off the 163. <laughs> I, start that, I start the sermon with a little humor because it really does help, but also because a good story has a twist and a surprise to it. And I want to point out a surprise twist that transforms everybody in this passage. See, if I was writing the Bible, this is a story I would not include. I would include the happier ones, the ones where you go from good to great, everybody comes together. I would not include a story about a near child sacrifice. I understand someone right now is saying, this is exactly what I can't stand about organized religion. We take these archaic, bronze age technology texts and try to find some sort of meaning in them and apply them to our lives today. Did you hear what it just said? It's talking about child sacrifice. People interpret a text like this and say things like, I need to do whatever God tells me to do, no matter how weird or evil or terrible or violent it is, 
And then they begin to weaponize scripture. People who do terrible things in the name of religion are just dumb things, saying things like, God told me to leave my wife of 30 years for my secretary, and I'm sure this is God's will. And they spiritualize all sorts of buffoonery or violence or abuse. And so I want to show you that's not what's happening here. In fact, I'm going to do something that violates all the rules of rhetoric. Any storyteller or story writer would tell you, when you tell a good story, you keep that twist until the end. You let the story crescendo until then you give the twist and the punchline. But I feel like if I don't give you a bit of the punchline up front, I might just lose you. You might not even hear the rest of what I have to say. So here's what I want you to know. I'm going to give you the twist up front. The early audience who first heard this, read this, recited this, would not have been shocked by the part that shocks you and me. Child sacrifice, unfortunately, was prevalent in the ancient Near Eastern world. So the part about take your child and sacrifice him to me, they would say, yeah, that's what we do. That's how you placate an angry God. That's how you get God on your side to provide for crops and rain and all the things that we need. Someone has to be thrown into the volcano. Someone has to be pushed off the cliff. Child sacrifice was not the problem. The part that would make the record skip and everybody gasp would be verse 12 when God says, do not lay a hand on that child. I am not a God like other gods. You are not going to be a people like other people. You are not going to solve your problems with violence. We do do not sacrifice children like the other nations around us. This is a different kind of people altogether who exercise the provision of God in this world, who experience the presence of God in this world, not through death, but through life. We're a different kind of people. So I hope that lets a little pressure out so we can hear the rest of the passage. It also means that today, if you're a Christian, but your understanding of God leads you to be a more violent person, a more militant person, or a more abusive person toward others, if not with your actions, at least with your words or your thoughts, you need to seriously rethink the way that you're responding to Scripture because that's not a picture of God that we find in Scripture. When God comes into your life, God's presence will make you more powerful and more peaceful at the same time. God's presence will make you more confident and more humble at the same time. There's another challenge that this passage gives us regarding sacrifice. Because the thing about sacrifice is, we all do it in one way or another, and you will always sacrifice for whatever is most important in your life. So let's use some of the classic examples. Sex, money, power. How's that? If, if money is the most important thing in your life, you will sacrifice relationships for it. If power is the most important thing in your life, you will sacrifice your ethics and your values for it at some point. If sexual connection is the most important thing in your life, you will sacrifice your own humanity for it. Ironically, you will be with somebody all the time and always feel alone. We always sacrifice for whatever's most important to us, but we do it in ways that end up eroding us. And so instantly this passage asks, 
what are you sacrificing for and how is it working for you? Now, back to the passage. This is what most scholars say is the climax of Abraham's life. People who are scholars of ancient literature will say this is one of the best told stories in all the literature we have on earth. Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, wrote his book, Fear and Trembling, in 1843 after reading this passage and considering what it would be like to stand before a God like this. This is an engrossing story, a riveting story, a disturbing story. It's a story where on one hand you don't want to hear anymore and at the same time you can't look away. A story that gets in your bones. So let's see what this passage teaches us about the nature of faith and what it means to trust God. Especially when you're asking questions like, God, can I trust you? Are you good? Where are you in the midst of the confusing times in my life? And in the time we have, let's look at Abraham's confusion, at Abraham's solution, and then at the resolution. The confusion, the solution, the resolution. And if we have time, I'll put in one more word that ends with ushin. Just, you know, good, good rhyming scheme today. But first, look at the confusion. Verse 1 through 2. These are words that echo and parallel what we had heard in Abram's original calling. So here we have, after these things, God said to Abram, Abraham, father of many nations, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there to the mountains I will show you. If you were paying attention a few weeks ago, and I know you were, Genesis 12, God comes to Abram and says, leave your father, your family, your father's land, your wealth, and go to the land I will show you. Leave the protected, leave the safe, leave the predictable and go where? I'll show you on the way. In that original calling, Abram was called to leave behind his past. But now Abram's called to do something far more difficult and leave behind his hope for the future. Because Isaac was the one, the promised child, the child of laughter, the one through whom God would give Abraham many descendants that if you could count the sand on the sea or the stars in the sky, your descendants will outnumber even them and through him a great nation will come and all nations will be blessed. This is the child of the promise. Do you see what Abraham's being asked to give up? Because we in a Western, individualistic, post-enlightenment society, we read this and we already see how devastating it is. Sad, tragic, not right. Simply to be asked to give up a child. For Abraham, it would have been all that and a whole lot more. In our culture, if we want to know your identity, if we want to subconsciously assign some sort of value to you, it's unfortunate we all do it. We'll ask questions like, where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What's your education? What do you do for work? But in Abraham's culture, they would ask, who's in your family? Do you have any sons? Because the son was the one, especially the firstborn was the one through whom all of the lineage of the family would go. Most of the resources would be passed. That is the future. And he's being asked to give it up. 
this is a perplexing test because it seems like the promise of God, I will bless all nations through Isaac, is at odds with the calling and the test right now, give up Isaac. Which on one hand simply means, shows us that faith, a relationship with God, even the most holy and sacred people that walk with God, talk with God, get confused. That sometimes life feels like you're in a snow globe that's been shaken up and all the particles are floating around and you can't see your hand in front of your face. That, my friend, is not a sign of the absence of God. It means God's with you in the midst of the chaos. Scripture is so honest about what it's like to have a relationship with God. Sometimes it's downright perplexing and confusing. Which means that if you're in a season of life right now where you can't foresee the future, where you're feeling confused or exhausted, you're asking questions like, what is God doing in my life or in the world? Why is God allowing this to happen? It means you're in good company. You're not alone. Maybe this passage teaches us sometimes God is trying to save your life, but it feels like he's after you. God's not after you. After our firstborn son, Benjamin, was born, I took him in with Florence to his doctor for the one-month checkup, and he had his one-month vaccinations. And it's a lot of needles. It was like three needles go in one leg and four needles go in the other. And I remember there, his little chubby legs as he's sitting there kicking, smiling. He has no idea what's coming. And he knows nothing about hepatitis A and B and C and polio and all these things that could take his life that he's about to be inoculated against. He has no idea. All he knows is he's with his dad, and it's a good day. So imagine the shock, pain, surprise in his little eyes as those seven needles went into his legs. And all I could do as his dad is look him in the eyes and cry with him because I wish he knew I was allowing this pain in his life for his own good. But there's no way to break through and, and say that to him. Now, that is a dim example, and I'm not saying God does bad things to people to teach you a lesson or to make you a better person. Part of this is a big mystery. But what we do learn is that God is with you in the midst of all the pain and all the confusion. We'll touch on that more later. God's calling Abraham to trust him with every aspect of his life. You know, people come to me, and I love that we have a church that you know you're most respected and welcome, wherever you are in your faith journey, processing the Christian faith. And often I'll have these wonderful conversations where people say, you know, I'm thinking of becoming a Christian. And often it's followed by, I can't even believe I just said that sentence, so please don't tell anybody I know. But I am thinking about becoming a Christian. But before I do, I want to know, I need to know how God is, uh, how, how following Jesus is going to affect all of these other areas of my life. I need to know how following Jesus is going to affect my sex life or my financial investments and the way that I give my money or the way I spend my time. I need to know if I'm going to have to start all these things or stop doing all these things. In other words, I don't want to become a Christian unless I'm guaranteed that I can hold on to all the things I really like and I can refuse all the parts that I really don't like. We want to be in control. Look, I get it. That makes total sense to me. I'm with you. God comes to you and continually says, go. 
to a land I will show you. It will feel like you're giving up some things that you really like because you are. It will feel like you're taking some things on that are really heavy because you are. And I will be with you every step of the way. Now, we will never trust him. We will never go on that journey. We'll never accept that invitation until you can see that God is not only useful, but good. Not only powerful, but beautiful. That God is actually for you more than you are for yourself. God is for this world that God created and loves. So go. I was reflecting this week. I celebrated my 11th anniversary of being ordained on Friday. And I was looking back at photos of that ordination. I'd already been in pastoral professional ministry for about a decade before that. But that was a big moment of being ordained as a minister of word and sacrament. I remember thinking how when I graduated college, I was sure I was going to get a law degree and a master's in business and be a sports agent in L.A. I wanted to be Jerry Maguire. And then I heard this call, go. It wasn't a call to be a pastor. It was a call, why don't you just try being a minister on campus at a university? And then it was one step in the next until we are where we are today. And as I I was preparing this morning, heading over to church, looking forward to seeing all of you and knowing that many more will be joining online. I had no idea back in 2010 when God said go that we'd end up back in San Diego starting a church for the good of all our neighbors right here. That there are people who were sleeping on the streets three years ago that have housing because this church exists. There are members of families that were not talking to each other three years ago that are now back in connection and communion with one another. There are people who are deep in the darkness and isolation of addiction who now have a community who is walking with them through the ups and downs because we're in this community. There are people who are saying, I can't believe I'm actually beginning to trust Jesus and becoming a Christian because of this community. It's because each of you is invited to go in your own way. I think about Janie Jennings with a full plate of all your work that you're doing at San Diego State and raising two girls and all of that, making sure Matt doesn't burn down the house. And she goes every month using her organizational skills to put on Know Your Neighbor so everyone can eat and come together. It changes the trajectory of relationships in the neighborhood. I think about Lori, who went the ex- literally went the extra mile today to be here early so that she can welcome people at the front door. Mark, who comes before and makes sure that the donuts are all ready to go and the place is set up as a place of hospitality. All of this costs. Wouldn't we rather sleep in an extra half hour on a Sunday morning? But you wake up and you think about the friend who's going to come to church for the first time, who I know for many of you when you come to church the first time, it's an act of courage. You're going, I can't believe I'm actually going to go to a church. And we get to say, we see you. We get it. We remember what that's like, and you're welcome here. So you go. I think about Sarah and Jay, Selin, with all that they're doing here in San Diego, starting their family, deeply involved in the ministry that they'd begun and helped develop back in India, in Jay's hometown, that prioritizes care toward widows, and children, people who are the most left out and most neglected in that society, in that city, because they go. And then our church gets to come alongside them and be a part of it. So here's the question. 
What does it look like for you to go? It might not be relocating to the other side of the country or the world. It might be just changing the way you interact in your neighborhood. It might be instead of showing up at church on Sunday, you say, I actually want to help grow that welcoming team so we can expand our hospitality. Matt, I want to be involved. What's it look like for you to go? So that's a confusing calling, but there's also a solution to it. And we find the solution in verse six. I'm not, obviously, not a director of movies or screenplays. We could ask Steve's help on this one, but if you were gonna write a storyboard for this or a timeline for this, verse six, everything slows down. Verse one through five, things are pretty quick. Go, do this, he moves, gets up quickly, gets the wood, gets ready. And then verse six, everything slows down and he takes the wood of the burnt offering and lays it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And then we hear the dialogue between Abraham and Isaac. In fact, this is the only place in scripture where we hear what Abraham and his son said to one another. And here's what we hear. I see the fire, I see the knife, I see all that we need, but where's the ram? And Abraham says, God will himself provide the ram. God will provide. That word in Hebrew for provide also means to see to it or to see. I wonder if what he's saying is, Isaac, I don't see the ram. You don't see the ram. But God will see to it that a ram is provided. I don't see how this story is going to end, but I trust that it will end with hope. He doesn't say, I can do it, or I must do it, or I will do it. He doesn't put on a happy face and pretend like things are okay. He reasons, God will do it. God will see to it. God will provide. And so the name of that mountain, Mount Moriah, becomes on this mountain, not on this mountain, God will be obeyed. It's on this mountain, God will provide. Where are you invited to trust right now that God will provide? How would your life be different if when your fears and your anxieties rise up and begin whispering to you or shouting at you, you didn't have to minimize them. You didn't have to escape them. You didn't have to medicate them. You could reason with them and say, I hear you, and God will provide. What sort of buoyancy would that add to your life? Resiliency would that bring? Later on, the writer of Hebrews is writing to this early church of people who would know this story really well and says, by faith Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead, 
And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you hear what he's saying? Abraham reasoned that no matter what happens, God will be able to fulfill God's promises so I can trust him. That's what this all comes down to, so I can trust him. I love this story I heard a long time ago about Mother Teresa in her ministry in Calcutta. Part of that ministry included what was called the House of the Dying, where people who were dying in the streets and in the gutters would be brought in, given a sponge bath and a meal if they were able to eat still, and assigned someone to hold them as they passed away so that they would die with dignity in the company of others and not alone. And this really successful cardiologist from the United States went out there to be a part of this on his vacation or time off and said, Mother Teresa, there's a lot I can do. I'm a really successful cardiologist. We have all these new procedures we're doing. How can I help? And she said, your job for the time you're here will be to go to the house of the dying and simply hold the neck and the head of someone in your lap as they pass away. Look them in the eyes. Tell them God loves them transformed this cardiologist's life. And he was pre preparing to come back to the States. She said to him, are there any things I can do for you? How can I be praying for you? And he said, well, Mother Teresa, at the hospital where I'm the chair of the department, we have a lot of big decisions to make, a lot of opportunities. I pray that you would prepare for clarity for me and all my decision making. And she said, you Americans are always asking for clarity. I will not pray for clarity for you. I will pray that you have trust enough in God's goodness that you continue walking forward when things are unclear. You can trust him. Now, that solution leads to and points to a greater resolution. Because this is not merely a a call that in the difficulties of your life and the confusions of this world to just kind of close your eyes and just believe, you know, just blind trust. That's not what it's given you. It's giving you something much more substantial, much more sturdy to build your life on. So we find this ram that's stuck in the thicket. God provides a ram. And the hills, we learn later, these very hills of Moriah, of God will provide, these are the hills in which Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the temple ends up being built. This is the land where Jesus will be crucified outside the city on a place called God will provide. God will provide the ultimate ram, the ultimate sacrifice. Abraham does not have to lift a hand against his son because God will send his only son to give his life on behalf of this world to take all the brokenness and injustice upon himself, to experience confusion and disappointment, to drink the, the difficulties of this world all the way down to the bottom of the cup, to say, do your worst to me. In Romans 8, the apostle Paul writes to a new church in Rome, he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, Will he not also give us all things? When John the Baptist first saw Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it says the next day Jesus was coming toward John the Baptist and John declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins 
of the world. You know what this means? I wonder if Abraham could have been there at the foot of the cross as Jesus is giving his life on behalf of all. If Abraham could actually reverse the words in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12, and he could say, and now I know, God, that you love me, that you're for me, because you did not withhold your only son, but gave him on my behalf. How do you know you can trust God? Because he not only sees you and knows you, he's actually utterly committed to putting things to rights. Abraham and Isaac going up that mountain are a picture of the gospel. If you want to know if God cares about you or sees you, you look at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And you begin to reason with yourself. He did all of that on behalf of you. His arm was not twisted. He was not manipulated into doing it. He willingly gives his life on your behalf. God in the flesh pouring his life out for you and me. And in the difficulties of life when you ask, what is God doing? Why is God allowing this? Leslie Newbegin, the great scholar theologian said, the Bible doesn't actually answer the question of why, but the cross is the great clue. On the cross, you have God saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I didn't misspeak, hear that again. On the cross, you have God saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, you have Jesus, God in the flesh, who knows what it's like to feel forsaken. Who knows what it like, is like to be a victim of injustice. Who knows what it's like to watch as all of his friends desert him. Who knows what it's like to stare the night before from the Garden of Gethsemane down into the valley of the shadow of death, knowing he will be crucified, and to say, God, if there's any other way, could we do it that way? And the answer is, no. This is the way to win them all back. A God who identifies with you. And a God who's done something about it. That three days later, in that first Easter, with that empty tomb and the miracle of the resurrection, it shouts to you and me that death is not the last word. That sorrow will not have the last laugh. That injustice at the end of the day does not have its way. But God is actually rewriting the story of the whole world. And friends, when you see that kind of resolution, it brings about a new buoyancy and a new hope. You have something substantial to hold on to. But you know what else it does then? I promised you a fourth word. There's not only confusion with a solution that leads to a resolution. All of that leads to a revolution. Because a Christian is someone who can say, I can trust God, I can believe. And when you can't trust God because it's not always perfect, I get it, I experience it too. We walk together. That's a whole other sermon. When you are weak, we are strong and vice versa. But when you see how God moves toward your confusion, your questions, your sorrow, the messiness of your life, then you become someone who can actually move toward the confusion and messiness of your neighbor or of your neighborhood. You can be a non-anxious presence in the midst of chaos, trusting that God will provide even as you can't see how. You become a beacon of light in a world 
that's full of shadows. You become the most approachable person in your workplace. You become an agent of resurrection power. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now that you would give us just your grace to see that we could trust you. This entire sermon is simply abstract rhetoric if it doesn't land deep in our hearts. And so we pray now that you would activate it by the power of your spirit in the details of our questions and concerns and that you would actually make us revolutionaries through peace, through humility, through confidence, through being proactive and trusting that you're at work in this world. And so we simply invite you to have your way, to do your will in our lives. Your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, amen. Amen.